Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, the Science in Sport podcast. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm with my co-host, Professor James Morton. Science in Sport is the world's leading endurance nutrition brand and this podcast aims to give you Olympic standard training and nutrition advice. In this episode, we're focusing on recovery with former England captain Dylan Hartley and leading expert on exercise recovery, Professor Glyn Howitson. We often overlook the importance of recovery across all sports, but rugby players are possibly the least rested athletes of them all. So although it's probably an extreme example, it will show us the effect of rest on performance. As always, we're joined by our athlete first. Dylan Hartley still holds the title of England's most capped hooker of all time and retired from his international career in 2018. Dylan, we're really grateful to have you. And you know what? I think the best place to start is actually what we've just been talking about. Because <laughs> I think it's brilliant. You kind of came on and was like, oh my God, telling us this big story about how um, you, you're on this, you're on a farm and the cows came through the gate because the gate was open because of a delivery man. Um, but genuinely, like, I think it's a great place to start because you were going to talk to us about kind of the way that you're living at the moment. So describe the story to us a little bit. I mean, it's an elaborate story, isn't it? For, for It's a hell of an excuse for being a minute late onto the call. I was like, I need to come up with something good here. I need to come up it's with something brilliant. good. It's brilliant. But no, the cows basically came through the gate and then, uh, I don't know, I've spent like the last 18 months kind of trying to grow grass and plant trees and then the cows, just their eyes lit up like it was a buffet. They were, they were fully in. It was like me at the buffet. Um, so I'm there trying to like get the delivery driver through and then push the cows the other way and then I got two dogs and it was madness but um yeah I made it onto the call 30 seconds late um here we are thank you for having me (laughs) no we're really pleased to have you and on that note is there a particular lifestyle you're living in terms of food and nutrition then are you not eating meat I don't know I'm I'm working it out I think Uh, I think it's a massive culture change from from where I've come from in terms of like when I played rugby, I obviously played for 16 years, 15, 16 years. And, you know, I slowly educated myself about nutrition through that process. I kind of ignored it for probably the first five to eight years. And then towards the tail end of your career, my career in particular, I started trying to hang on and try and do everything, probably a little too late. So I started educating myself about nutrition. And, man, I was eating kind of targeting over a 200 grams of protein a day and that's a whole lot of meat and then I kind of came out the other side and I don't know was I influenced by all the sort of Netflix stuff and I don't know it just got quite tiresome trying to hit those sort of targets I think and then to what end as well you know I was thinking why am I doing it we've got a big old veggie garden here and um, my wife studies nutrition as well so you couple that with kind of trying to teach the kids about growing and you know where their food comes from um we're quite heavily into that sort of thing so at the moment like my wife's gone out this morning she's gone to get more asparagus because man like if you plant asparagus it takes three years to come through so we've got this veggie garden that we kind of live out of we've got we've got our own chickens and do you know what I, I, if there's an option now i tend to lean towards um you know something plant-based but i still eat meat um i just try and eat good meat and enjoy eating the meat instead of you know when I was a rugby player it was like every meal had to have like a massive source of meaty protein otherwise it wasn't a meal um whereas now and I think because um 
Joe, my, my wife, who's got such an interest in nutrition and kind of creating meals and recipes. Like some great books out there now. Um, I'm kind of spoiled in terms of choice. You know, like she's always creating, making things for dinner that we've never tried. And like our cupboard is full of like all these weird and wacky sort of whole foods. So um, saying that, I'm still fat. Um, but yeah. It's, <laughs> You're um, looking in good shape to me. Yeah, you know, I'm probably the same weight as when I played. Um, I do a few weights and stuff like that. But um, you know, it's just the focus, you know. I used to be um, scared of, of Graham Close, uh, who James is, Professor Close, sorry, who James shares an office with. Um, you know, it, when, I, when I play for England, like every Monday, a nutritionist would drive like three hours to come take my skin folds. There I am standing at home in the kitchen in my pants and this guy pinching me all over to send updates back to Eddie. So No, tell us about about Professor Close because James, you share an office with him, but you're also like best pals. Is he that scary? Nah, I mean, I'll say for, for me, like professionally, because my, my weight always undulated, fluctuated, it was a pretty turbulent sort of, it was the main thing front of house in my mind the whole time was my body weight or my, my composition my skin folds because you're always judged on those because it's, it's kind of black and white data it's like how hard how diligent are you being especially if you're a person like me that can put on three or four kilos in a weekend if i have the wrong food and alcohol you know i can i can bloat pretty fast so it was a clear indicator to you know the higher power my coaches that how diligent or professional I'd been, you know, I played with guys that could eat and drink whatever they want. It wouldn't touch the sides. But for me, it was a clear indicator. So um, respectfully, Professor Graham Close and his cronies, his little minions, um, there was amount of respect, but maybe resent and fear as well. And the, the irony is, is, um, you know, I, I dodged, ducked and, and dived away from these guys for years. But I think the, the key thing here is that as soon as you try and work with them instead of against them, um, things become a lot easier. And, that was probably me from about 28, 29, 30 onwards um, in my career. So I wish, you know, if I could, I don't have many regrets, but if I was a bit younger and I, I craved information or, or education in certain kind of areas of my, my life and game, I think I could have been a bit better, definitely. Dylan, what do you think is the difference between that? What What would make you want to be more interested younger what makes somebody like yourself, an athlete, grow up quicker? How can we install that maturity earlier? Or is it just you have to experience it? I need to 100% stipulate that I'm not an athlete. I've, I've seen some of your former guests on this. and You I'm are an sitting, athlete. I'm a, I was a sportsman. There's a difference between an athlete and a sportsman. Uh, rugby produces both. And uh, I sit in the sportsman category. So what's the but difference I'm, then, before you answer my other question? I, I see an athlete as like someone who... I don't know, is physically kind of not gifted, but I don't know. I suppose I was fit for purpose in many cases for, for what I had to do in rugby. But, you know, I, I wasn't athletically gifted in that sense. I wasn't overly quick or strong and and whatnot. But there was a place for me in rugby, whereas I couldn't have applied my mindset and attitude to swimming, for example. Whereas rugby, I could apply my mindset and attitude to rugby and be successful. Yeah, but I bet a swimmer couldn't be a rugby player, though. Yeah, maybe. But in, in regards to your question, I think, you know, for me, I think experience is a, a great teacher. You have to experience anything to, to learn from it, you know. And often, you know, the, the best learnings are the, the most difficult. But, yeah, I think, 
you know, I work with a couple of young kids now, kind of 16, 17, 18 year olds, and I kind of try and empower them to, to ask more questions. And I think the hardest thing is when, you, when you're coming through as a youngster, and especially for me, I left home at, at 16, I resented authority or anyone sort of telling me what I should do because I lived by myself from such a young age and found my way that I knew what I was doing. You know, like we've all been teenagers, you, you think you're kind of really clever and grown up. But, you know, unfortunately for me, my, my rise was pretty rapid and I'd done it all by myself. So I thought I could continue that. Um, but I think the hardest thing I found was staying there was was harder than the rise. And that's when I started to ask questions because I wanted to stay there. But yeah, if, if I talk to any young kids now, it's like find people that, that have the information, find people that know about strength and um, nutrition and you know conditioning. People have gone to, to university for years. People are professors about this. Don't dodge these people. We're like, get on side, ask the questions, you know, whether it's mental skills, you know, physical training, whatever it may be, just ask the question because people want to help as well, you know? Yeah, Graham definitely isn't as scary as what Dylan made out, that's for sure. But Gra Graham's actually a, ro a former rugby player, Charlie, so I think he understands the sport and could really relate to people like Dylan. There's been so much good points that Dylan's made already. I don't know where to start. Right, I'll um, see you later then. Done. <laughs> One of the things that I, I did like that you mentioned there, Dylan, was that when adolescents and children are growing up, quite often they get told what to do all of the time. But actually, the modern day coach is more about coaching by questions and making people arrive at their own conclusions. But when you reflect back on your own career at that age, who would you say was really the influence? Was it parents, coaches, players, or were you self-driven yourself, or was it a mix of all of those? I think that, that kind of you hear about people's why, you know, why they do things, why they push themselves to certain places and uh, make themselves uncomfortable. I think your influence changes. You know, like when I was ten playing the game and I first signed up for rugby, my, my my key influence were my friends. You know, I wanted to go along and then you meet like an inspirational coach at 12 years old and he might he makes you all sign a contract saying you're going to turn up for training every Tuesday, Thursday and, and games. So from, from an early age, like the influence of buying into a team was there. And then, you know, all your youth coaches, they have a massive influence. Then you have like, I had a guy called Dorian West who is like my protagonist and also my mentor, like, love-hate kind of coach-mentor relationship who pushed me, prodded me. But he was like a key influence. And then I suppose at 21, 22, you, you arrive as an England international and then you've got your club coaches. You've always got different influences. And then your reasons, I suppose, or your needs change. And I think for me, between 20 and 30, I was kind of left to my own devices. It's almost like you have this rise and then you arrive, you're, you're an England player. And the coaching, I'm not saying stopped, but within rugby, there's a culture of facilitating for the weekend. So you've got 15 guys that are going to play. And because you're all judged and coaches are judged on win or lose at the weekend, it's all about getting the team ready. And when you break down a training week, there's not much time on the field, you know. So it's not about the individual. It's more about the team. So you have this rapid rise. You go play international rugby and you're in a club system where the training's not about you as an individual. It's about the team. For about 10 years, I was left to my own devices and I didn't really improve or work on anything. Then Eddie Jones kind of came into my career and said, you've got an ultimatum here. We can't do much physically or with your game, but we can make incremental changes. And for the last years of your career, we can 
we can try and do some things, you know? So for me, my influence has changed throughout, but I think there was, there was a big gap of not having a clear direction of what I wanted to do or, you know, KPIs, you know, what did I want to, did I physically want to improve? Did I technically want to improve tactically? You know, I didn't have these things. I didn't have a roadmap in, in my twenties, you know, it was just go out, play, play well. You know, I was very lucky to be in good teams and we performed, which kind of kept me um, at the top of a pecking order. But yeah, if answering your question, my, my influence has just changed like yours would have, you know, throughout your life. Yeah, definitely. I've heard you speak about Eddie Jones before. Do, do you wish that you'd met Eddie at the beginning of your career? Yeah, I might not have survived though. I might have turned to dust. Uh, <laughs> at 23 years old, I might have been dust. I, you know, I'm only six feet under. But um, <laughs> these things are all, you know, I'm not one to look back and you know, everything brings you to a point. You know, if I'd met Eddie earlier, would I have captained England and experienced what I had there? And I think what I was most happy with my career is I experienced everything and then not many players get to do that. So, I can look back on my time with Eddie and go, that was high performance, that was arduous, that was that was graft. Was it enjoyable? Probably not. Was it satisfying? Yes, it was. And if I'd met him at 23 and had this, I had nothing to compare to, you know, whereas I'd had different managers, I'd different experiences. And by the time I got to Eddie, I was mature enough to think I want to make a, a good go of this, you know. So, nah, I'm I'm happy with the, how it's gone, you know. How did that play into captaincy, the role as a captain, in terms of the fact that you said you were, it was almost like you almost forgot about your own rugby and yourself and then it was all about the team and also you play the game and then we don't see the training day, day in and day out? No, nah, 100%, that, that is it. You know, I think captaincy for me is 95% kind of Sunday to Friday. It, it's like this thing that supporters, fans, you know, general public don't see. Um, I think captain your club's way different because relationships are formed over time. And, you you know, I've been at Northampton my whole career, essentially, 15 years, and you become part of the fabric. So it's really easy to manage relationships, understand how things work. But when you, when you go into England, it's almost like you inherit a family and you've got to bring it together pretty quick. And you're inheriting different dynamics, you know, club rivalries, position, and it's an aspirational group, you know. Everyone, whilst we are a team, are all there because they are desperately hungry, sort of high achievers that are pretty selfish in many respects as well. You know, you, you guys talk to a lot of um, sportsmen and women. Uh, ultimately, I think we are a, a very selfish kind of driven person. But then you've got to bring that all together. And uh, I think the best thing for me was in previous regimes under different managers, that sort of competitive selfishness i don't want to make it sound too negative but that affected the group there wasn't a, a higher power to kind of focus us whereas eddie gave us that higher power made that group aspirational and if you weren't pulling your weight you'd fall by the wayside and we'll get another player in so my job as a captain there all those dynamics we talked about it was pretty easy to manage because if you didn't want to basically jump on the bus you're being kicked off the bus or you weren't even getting on the bus you know Eddie, it would be clear as day that you you weren't a team player and you'd be gone. Someone has to be brought in. So he made the, um, that England shirt and loads of coaches paid lip service to it. You know, he made it an honour and a privilege to be there. You know, previous coaches had talked about that, but you'd get guys that would coast their way through the week and then play at the weekend off their name, you know. 
off their credit in the bank. Whereas I had to train every minute of every day to earn my spot as the captain, you know, and if anything, I had to work. He, he provided p plenty of opportunities for me to work harder um, so that the team could see me work hard as well. So if anything, I was the example for him of work ethic, you know, publicly he would come after me in team meetings, you know, so if he can go after the captain about my standards, you know, no one was safe effectively. But I, I kind of knew that was happening. In terms of yourself, just on the captaincy thing, you said that he made an example of you and in in meetings, what was that like? What was your response for that? And what did you learn in terms of like a leadership captaincy role? Was it something you had to figure out along the way? And what do you think is the most important thing around that? No, I, I think when you've been there around the game for a long time, a lot of coaches do this, that they go after the senior players. So they show the younger players that, you know, it's not, the standards aren't just set for rookies, apprentices, novices, you know, that the, the most experienced guys can be brought down a peg or two. So you kind of know it's what the coach is doing and he's doing it publicly. What is it about you then that made you so successful? Well, there's a, there's a comparison there, like, you know, skill set wise. I, I, uh, if I compare myself to Courtney, Courtney can, Courtney's a game changer. So fans love him, coaches love him because he can make a match defining tackle. He can make a match defining carry. Like he's a big moment player. Whereas uh, I probably look at all my moments. There's no big moments, but there's no highlight reels for doing the basics really well over and over again, you know? Like if, if you YouTube Courtney, you'd probably see a compilation of, you know, a hundred bone crunching tackles, but you couldn't like YouTube me and find, you know, clearing, you know, inside cleaner at a ruck. You don't even know what that means. Or like a latch on a ball carrier. Like my, my job was effectively not to carry the ball, it was to assist and resource the ball, you know? So people like Courtney could do his thing, but I was comfortable with that. But unfortunately, you know, playing the position I did, you're always compared to someone else that does more or does different to you. But the best thing I suppose I had, and Eddie said this to me, he goes, you're the best set piece hooker in the world, which meant in his eyes, I was the best line out thrower. I was the best scrummager. In terms of like close quarters, I was very competent. And that's all he wanted from me. He goes, we need to have the best scrum in the world and the best line out. So we can launch someone like Manu Tulagi off, off the tail of a line out, you know? There's no point having, uh, in my opinion, a hooker that can't throw or win a scrum, you know? It's, it's your bread and butter. So Eddie just said, this is what I need from you. Um, it was a really limited sort of checklist. It was like, make your tackles. He actually said to me, I don't want you to tackle like Courtney, but just be 100% completion, you know? Don't miss tackles, clear rucks, and be you know good at your set piece. So for me, that kind of freed me up to go, okay, the game's not that complicated now. I just need to go and do that. And then I suppose because my role wasn't overly complicated, what made me successful, uh, or in your words, successful, I just had like a, a, a real hunger and, and drive for competition. I, I loved competing. I loved trying to get people around me to compete because I wasn't overly athletic or my skill set wasn't, you know, I wasn't the game changer. All I had to do was be confrontational and have an edge. And, you know, fortunately in rugby, there's a place for someone like that, you know. I think it was great, Dylan, to listen to your relationship with Eddie there. And I think the word that springs to mind for me between the coach and athlete is clarity. And it's the same in any walk of life, even if it's business or education or whatever. As long as there's clarity between the two parties, 
everyone gets better. And it sounds like you had absolute clarity on your role and what was expected from you. 100%. And um, again, like clarity, it's not comfortable clarity, you know, but at least there's no confusion in that. You know, I've had plenty of coaches, you know, for example, selection, team selection. You know, it's it's either you're not good enough, you're not doing this good, or some coach gives you some sort of throwaway, oh, we're just looking at this option this week. Or I'd rather be told you were not good enough this last weekend because of this, this, and this. And then you can move on. You can at least kind of park it, understand it, and, and move on. So equally, like day to day, I had plenty of feedback from Eddie. You know, every night I'd, I'd debrief with him before bed. Um, so I'd either go to bed with, you know, a good night's sleep or a disturbed night's sleep because I'm thinking about tomorrow. Um, and then every morning I'll check in with them as well. So there, there were some days where I'd start the day on the back foot saying yesterday wasn't good enough. Bang, bang, bang. This was terrible. This de-. And it's all on your shoulders because you're the captain. You're not running this properly. And then at lunchtime after that first morning session, he, you know, the clarity is it was very good today. Well done. Um, so it was very kind of instant feedback. It wasn't, you never left wondering. You never kind of, and I think that was the best thing about Eddie is how direct he is, how brutally honest. And and when you look at cultures or, or characteristics and people, they're often the best and worst things about them. You know, like say British people, I can say this because I'm, I'm Anglo Kiwi, you know, but British people are quite reserved and quite polite. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I, I think that what, what I was trying to do though is the comparison of being reserved and polite is, is really good in some situations, but in other situations, nothing gets done, you know, if you're reserved and polite. And when I look at Eddie, I don't know, where it's built from or where it's come from. Um, but his characteristics are brutally direct, which is hard if you're sensitive. But I think what I learned in sport is, you know, you become used to that, those sorts of conversations. And geez, if I have a, a high performance conversation at home with my wife, it doesn't go down well. So I've had to change how <laughs> I speak at home. But like she can't, you know, like I'm not dropping her in it here, but you can't use that sort of direct feedback of, you, you know, the power of words is completely different when talking to other people in different walks of life, you know? Um, so I suppose there was never confusion with Eddie. I always knew the team always knew players always knew where they stood with them. Um, and it wasn't always, you know, what everyone wanted, but at least, you know, at least, you know, you know, but we also wanted to talk a bit about training. Could you describe to us? And I know James really kind of wants to, to get into the crux of that in terms of rugby and nutrition. Can you describe to us what, I don't know whether it works like this, but a typical day in in a schedule in a rugby player or in terms of training and fueling? Yeah, I mean, I said this off air. The irony of having me on this is like, I'm probably the least professional person to talk to about diet and training, but that's good. You've got to have balance to your podcast, right? So if, if, we, if we build, you always work backwards from a game. So if you if you target Saturday as your traditional game day, you know, Game day minus one. So Friday is usually a light run, um, which is focused purely on basically getting the boys out of bed, getting bodies moving. Otherwise, guys just lie in their pits all day. You know, like guys, they'll just be sleeping, drinking coffee. You know, like I don't know how many coffees some guys drink a day, but it's not healthy. But Friday is more about uh, ironing out any sort of questions that you may have in the week. So it's it's on field. Um, 30 minutes, potentially 40 minutes, 45 minutes, including a warm-up, bit of mobility, that sort of stuff. You're getting ready for the game next day. Can I also just ask Dylan about game day minus one? Because we've talked about that a lot with other athletes. 
Um, but for the rugby player, because you guys are usually heavier and because we prescribe carbohydrate content in relation to your body mass, I remember speaking to Graham a lot that it's a lot of carbohydrate for you guys to have. Did you struggle with eating that on game day minus one? Uh, no, it was the best day of the week. A Friday night. <laughs> this is why I think I should do the, the week the other way around because in my mind, it's like you work hard, you prepare you prepare every day, but physically you do a lot of the stuff Monday to Thursday. And then Friday is just like you roll out of your pit and you go have some breakfast. And you know, as a captain, I'm thinking about the pre-meeting and a few things I've got to run. But other than that, physically, it's a real down day. You, you know you're not going to push yourself too far. And food, you know, I always had the thing of like, you could basically eat anything the day before a game. Because guess what, Mr. Mr. Close, who wrote our, our plans and stuff like that, like every option of food was there. So you but literally was, could eat anything you wanted then? Yeah, I mean, again, you're, you, like you're talking about other athletes where weight management is really important. Like I, I could weigh in match day 108 kilos, 110 kilos, 112, 106, 104. I wouldn't really care. Because that is that is the sort of range I played. But if you said that to a boxer or a cyclist or a swimmer, it'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what have you been up to? Whereas rugby, it's a bit like, this is where I'm at at the moment. I can fluctuate three, four kilos. How hydrated are you? That sort of thing. Like, yeah, Friday was a good day. And then everyone talks about it was chocolate and goujons day. So we had this like secret kind of digestive kind of biscuit bar that rolled out every Friday and chicken goujons with like mountains of tomato sauce and mayonnaise, you know, like the boys, I think all week when you live, we were living in bubbles, like rugby teams been living in bubbles or sports teams know all about bubbles, you know, before a bubble was a thing. But like <laughs> when all week you're eating just, it was good food. Like I love food. The food was always good. There's always so many different sources of protein to choose from and, and you know every sort of grain or salad or vegetable carbohydrate it was everything you could ever want but you put some breaded chicken out with some tomato sauce and you put some digestive kind of chocolate tray bake thing out the boys went mad for it and it almost became like a morale thing like the guys will gather in the team room and i think that's the importance of food as well like it's where people come together and i'm a big believer in trying to keep people in that space, you know, talking around the table, engaging, effectively breaking bread. You know, a lot of meetings can happen around the table. Things can be ironed out at dinner, lunch, breakfast. So the importance of the chocolate, oh my gosh. When we traveled abroad, I mean, we, we chartered flights. We got private planes, you know, from places. Sometimes we went further afield on tour. Like they would take like these little takeaway boxes of the chocolate. It was almost like carry on. To flip it on its head, at Northampton for years, when we we're probably our most successful, we, we played in knockout games for about five, six, seven years in a row. Semi-finals, finals, didn't win them all. We obviously lost a lot, but we were competing every year. Every Friday after team run, we would have a full roast. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, that defies everything I know about sports science and nutrition. It was like, we would have a 5,000 bloody calorie kind of beef roast with a sticky toffee pudding and boys were taking home leftovers. But for whatever reason, I don't know if it was good to have red meat sat in the belly, probably not, tell me that. But morale was high. And like, if we didn't have the roast, guys would lose, They'd be like, where's our roast? We're gonna lose it the weekend. So, oh my gosh, the roast comes back and we start winning again. So like, I don't know, I'm probably 
contradicting or challenging everything that we're here to talk about. But man, I mean, I played with best player I've ever played with. He chewed tobacco before a game, didn't mobilize, didn't do any warm up, chewed tobacco, spat into a water bottle, went out and played a stormer every week. Like, where's the science in that? Yeah, you're right. Look, game day minus one is about getting the foods in to deliver the right macronutrients, which we need, which is largely carbohydrate. Now, even when you look at a roast dinner, you're getting potatoes, you're getting your sticky toffee pudding that you mentioned there, Dylan. That's all carbohydrate that's going to help you prepare for the game. Perhaps red meat the day before might not be the best of things for some players. Perhaps it's fine for other players. The most important thing is tailoring the nutrition to what you need. I think rugby is very unique in that sense. Like Some of the best players I've ever seen play the game or or play the game now aren't typically, I don't know, some sort of culture or gym culture or whatever it is, has taken over what we think a rugby player looks like as well. You know, like all the young guys now are doing weights so early. But some of the best guys I've played with have got like, like Mako Vonapola, like he's got a tyre. He's got a tyre. And like, he's agile, he's explosive, he's strong, he's skillful, does all these things. And I mean, I hope he doesn't. He gives the common man a bit like myself hope that he might play for England one day. You know, you don't have to look a certain way. And I think rugby is very unique in the, in the respect of, like I alluded to before, I played anywhere from, you know, I got down to 100, 100 kilos at one point and I played at 115 kilos. So I played international rugby with a 15 kilo kind of swing. But if I was cycling or running or swimming, that obviously would have a massive impact. Whereas rugby is so unique. Like some guys can rock up and you're basically asking people to emotionally kind of commit for 80 minutes to put their body through the ringer. People can do that. It's not just them by themselves because it's a team sport. You've, you know, I mean, you look at tight head props, the biggest sort of heaviest guys on the park. Their one job essentially is to lock down the scrum. And I, I know coaches that, would encourage their tight air props to have more pudding. Like when, when it was roast at Northampton, my, my forwards coach would be like, have more pudding. Have more. I want you all heavy for the weekend. I don't care about anything else as long as the, the scrum is rock solid. And then you've got the nutritionist on the other side going, well, I've asked him to get his skin folds down because, you know, we're professional and, and all this. But then you've got basically the guy who picks him saying, nah, 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 be heavy, be big and heavy. I don't, I don't care. So, I don't know. I think rugby's in a unique sort of um, place where, I don't know, it's like fit for purpose in a way. You, you could probably get away with carrying a bit more or, or less and, you know. Yeah. No, that, that was something I did want to ask you, Dylan, was um, what weight did you think that you played best at in your career? And the reason why I wanted to ask that is because I've spent the majority of my career working in professional football or cycling, where, as you've said, two or three kilos can be the difference between winning and losing. But I know from work, from speaking to people who work in rugby, the amount of conversations they've had about this player needs to be one kilo heavier or one kilo lighter. And in, in my naivety of not working in the sport, I often think, well, in the grand scheme of things, is that really going to make a difference? So I'd love to know your perspective as someone who's been there, done it. From 100 kilo to 115, did you play better or worse? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, probably when I was too heavy, worse. Um, I think there is a sweet spot for me. It was, it was 108, 110. But um, again, being more kind of um, body conscious, I suppose, or just wanting to lose weight, I found a way to lose weight and I basically cut out all carbohydrates and like fruit and dairy. And 
I basically was just eating protein and veg. I was obviously getting some sort of energy source from things like broccoli. You know what I mean? But I got injured straight away. Like I then worked out like having a bit of a, a bit of cushion, you know, around my midriff. I started um, tearing my my abs and like taking impacts and scrummaging in particular. The the difference of five ten kilos is huge, you know. And for me, that is where I earned my corn effectively. Being a set piece sort of player, I couldn't be light effectively. So I, I got all the way down to 100 kilos um, and realized it wasn't wasn't good for me. And the other thing was, it was like I've never struggled with any sort of mental health, I suppose, but it's just not fun. But this is, you know, I just didn't understand what I was doing. I just, someone said, I'll oh, do this, do this. And then I was thinking, am I actually fueling myself for games if I've got no carbohydrates? And I talked to James Haskell about this, who's really, um, him and his wife are fully on and understand this stuff. He did the same thing. Like he was more worried about kind of men's health cover shoot or it might've been gay times, but you know, like trying to get ripped and look big, basically be a bodybuilder. But like, this is rugby. Like, are you, are you recovering from training? Are you preparing for training? Are you, and I think this is the sort of thing I worked out way too late in my career. And and if I flip it to the, the early stages of my career, like financially just not having the the money to eat well. I remember when I was an academy player, I was like, man, I live with this first team guy and he had steak for breakfast every morning. It was George Foreman. I was like, whoa, when I make it, like I'm having steak for breakfast. I was picking up coppers off the street to buy like poached eggs and poached eggs on toast is like my staple diet with like, you know, that pillowcase kind of size kilo bags of pasta that with like tin tomatoes and cheese, you know, like that is all... It was like student diet when I was technically a professional, but the money I had, I couldn't afford to eat well. And it sounds like an excuse, but that's the reality. But then you chuck alcohol in with that, you know, early 2000s, uh, I suppose in 2000 to 2010, I probably binged way too much because I was kind of young, free, enjoying the the journey, I suppose. But the, the culture around alcohol in the game was far different to what it is now. Um, whereas by the end of it, I was like teetotal. You know, I didn't want to touch anything because of inflammatory and bleed and, you know, just worried about training the next day. You know, I just didn't, and then the calories, I was just like, when you understand what you're doing, I can make better choices. But hey-ho, you live and learn, eh? James, what Dylan was just saying in terms of, I think it was really interesting what you just said. We talk so much about like for performance and for fuel, but what about for recovery? What about actually the impact it's having on your body and making sure you're taking in the right things? Because it's interesting that you said as soon as you started doing that, then you got then you got injured. James, in terms of recovery, how important is that? Yeah, because if there's one sport in the world where recovery is so important, this is it. The sheer impacts that these guys take every every game and every training session, recovery is absolutely critical. And from a fueling perspective, if you don't consume carbohydrate, that's the number one remit in recovery to give you enough energy to go again the next day. So it's no surprise, Dylan, that, that you did tend to suffer more injuries when you were under fueling. Did you ever feel like you were recovered? Because I know you've spoken in your autobiography about rugby normalizing pain and an injury. And I think I think we I think as fans you can we kind of see that. You know, when you say it, it make it makes sense and you see that. 
Did you ever feel like you recovered? It's constant. You know, I can only speak for, for English rugby as well. The system that's in here, because there's not a united sort of alignment to what we want to achieve because clubs are privately owned and there's no central contracts. It gets quite complicated. But you know, if you look to, to Ireland or, or Wales where players are managed a lot better, they play a certain amount of games each year. Whereas you know, here in England, your club pays you. So they want to play you every game because they pay you. And then because you want to play for England, you want to play every game for England as well. So it's not like if you're an Irish player, you play a Six Nations, then you go back and you have two weeks off and then you you get rolled out for the next big game, you know. Whereas Northampton, I play a full Six Nations, then the week I get back, it's like we've got a, a relegation game on or a top four push on. It's like every game matters. So like they want their best or highest paid or not saying I was one of the highest paid, but they want their internationals on the field. So in terms of recovery, there aren't windows to recover. And what, what's really interesting is like, I think every athlete is always fighting or sportsman or woman is always fighting some sort of niggle, some sort of not weakness or something that's, you know, they're always carrying something, you know, rugby, it's always shoulders, backs, ankles, knees, you know, everyone's always strapped up, always carrying something. But this is what I mean, it normalizes it, you just push on through. And the other thing is, you're in the system, which recoveries ran down your throat. So after a game, you know, protein shoved in your hand, you, you're timed in the ice bath, the cryotherapy chambers there, the masseuses are there, but then now uh, you retire, all that's stripped away. And what I've found is like my body is trying to recover, but all that stuff it relied on from hip mobility warm-ups every day to shoulder stability, kind of band work to, you know, lower back, lumbar flexibility, all these things, stretching classes that we used to do that I used to kind of moan and groan through. They were the things kind of keeping me together. And I think the biggest thing when we think about rugby, we think of collision or contact. So it's like you could sit there and punch yourself in the, the ribs over and over again and think that's how rugby feels, where it's not. It's almost like the loading of your tendons and your hips and your, you know, your, your joints, being on the field just about every day and then taking those impacts. Like tackling's easy. Like someone run at you or you run at them, tackling is easy, but it's the load that it's putting. So every warm-up you go into, everyone's kind of moaning and groaning about how sore everything is, you know. It's not because you've got soft tissue. It's more your joints. And, um, and that's the stuff that people probably don't think about when they think of a contact sport. It's just the constant loading of being on your feet. Like I wear um, a little Garmin, and if I get to 10,000 steps a day, which I try and target, like I'm knackered by the end of it. Like my, my knees and my hips are blown up and I'm aware of what I'm eating and drinking throughout the day as well to not kind of aid that. But yeah, recovery, never never fully recovered. Like after a game, you're looking at three, four, I'll be looking at Wednesday, the recovery day and the, the preparation week. That was when I'd actually feel good at the end of that day. Because you, but you've got to train through. You can't just have your feet up till till Wednesday, you know what I mean? You've got to use Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to, oh, it's, it's difficult, it's difficult. It reminds me of a study, actually, Dylan, that I'd, we did with Graham a few years ago on rugby league players. So as you know, many athletes do those questionnaires where they rate themselves for soreness every morning. And we did this with a rugby league team for the whole season and looked at the data. And as you've just said, they were pretty much sore every single day of every single week. Um, and after the match, it lasted for at least four days. And then it started to taper off a little bit. But then, of course, you go again. Now, in other sports like football, again, 
players may fill in the same questionnaires. There's nowhere near the same soreness profiles as what a rugby player experiences. So I, I really do sympathise with you guys. I don't know how you how you do it for so long. It is crazy. And, and sports science that you touched on there, we, we did this recovery thing and they kind of monitored our heart rate and breathing. And then off the back of that, they worked out some sort of recovery. You know, some players needed longer um, and whatnot. So they started like structuring, you know, after game day, plus one, plus two, you know, what do we do with this guy? And this is where the racehorses, like the wingers and the Courtney Lawses, it was like, okay, we're going to pull them out of, you know, on feet conditioning on a Monday and Tuesday out of the contact session, they'll come out. And like mine, talk to Graham close about this. I, I need to have a word with the bugger actually. Like mine was screaming. Like it was, I don't know what you call it. It was like a stress profile. Mine was screaming and it was like all pointing to Dylan just needs to lie in a hot bath all week and roll out for the game. And this is where sports science great and also very <laughs> hilarious. Eddie looked at it and went like, nah, mate, but you're the captain. And it was just like, so I had to be <laughs> on the field. And I remember one day I trained like an absolute loser because I had a, a lower back problem. And he said, why did you train, mate? You're setting a bad example. Like, and it was, it was more aggressive than that. And I said, well, I know that I can't miss a training session because the one time I had missed a training session because of an issue, he said, my, I want my captain on the field every every session. So I'm, I'm caught in this thing of like, do I train, don't I train? I basically got to withdraw myself from competition if I can't train. So I basically had to bloody diazepam, tramadol, ibuprofen. Like I was banging all in like they were smarties. And I hated it because I knew it wasn't good for you. But I, I got through, you know, I got through. Joking aside on that, it's... I, I I personally know that that's quite a big culture in the people that I know, and I know you said it before in rugby. And now, you know, you said you're left almost with, you're saying 10,000 steps and then you're knackered. Do you look now at the impact it's had on your body and your future yeah, in terms of your mobility? Because mobility is incredibly important. And I think we joke about that culture where you've just got to suck it up type thing, but it's it's you that's ultimately left with that. I think it's it's all good when you when you've got to suck it up. And I look at when I retired, I was spending probably five hours either side of an hour's field session to train and be involved. So, you know, start with a swimming pool, mobility, travel there, get to the club, do kind of physio, osteo, and then do fire ups. You know, kind of pre pre activation before training. Train for an hour then come off and do the same sort of recovery protocol down, you know, physio, osteo, mobility, stretching, swimming pool, and like all to do like an hour session. Yeah, I'm kind of like picking up the pieces now, but I fully understand I signed up to that. I think what's hard is if I was still playing and you feel like you do, you're institutionalized into just your tolerance to pain is just there. So you go out and you just get on with it. And guess what? Adrenaline and whatever, and because you know what you do, you get through it, and then recovery is there. But I suppose when you when you stop, that whole kind of infrastructure falls away. You know, like everything from Austinol to MRIs to swimming pool memberships to gym memberships to osteo to physio to massage. Like, like if I did all that in a week, you could be looking at a couple hundred quid's worth of thing. And not everyone's in a position to start spending that on themselves, or they prioritize. You know, especially when you retire, you go from having, uh, I'd like to think a lot of the guys have a disposable income effectively to then have 
taking on responsibilities and managing your money. And it's like, oh, I don't need the swimming pool membership now. So that 25 quid a week will go. And then massage once a week, physio 55 quid. I don't need the Austinol because that's 300 quid. Like at the end, we, I was banging in Austinol for fun and into my joints. And I know current players that are doing it because it's all on part of the service. And I suppose you're left to pick up the pieces. Yeah. And, but I kind of knew to expect something, but I didn't think it would be as bad as I am now. Um, and the one thing I do do a week is that I get physio once a week to to help and kind of keep me on track with some sort of order or routine into kind of building towards a, a healthier place, I suppose. But um, she's not easy, eh? It's, um, you know, what, if, if I could trade, I'd rather have a sore shoulder than sore, lo- like a lower body thing because it, it's pretty demoralizing. Like I've got a little walk that we take the dogs on. It's about three, 4K long. And sometimes like my hip will just seize up. And I, I found myself with a stick the other day, like triggering my hip around the walk. It looked like I was stabbing myself in the bloody groin. But yeah, it's, it's all part and parcel. And then, you know, we, I don't really, we don't need to get into it, but you get into the head knock side of it and some of the sort of knock on effects of that. And I don't know, I think you start with this aspiration, like all young people to be professional and, and achieve and to be a high achiever. And then you get caught up in it and you get caught up in the competing and then the, the sort of drug, everyone talks about that drug of playing international sport or competing at a high level. And then you're almost institutionalized into it. And then by 30, financially, you're reliant on it. And then you have a family and you're like, shit, I've got to milk this for all it's worth. So again, like your your influences or your reasoning changes. You know, my, my whole journey, all I wanted to be was a professional rugby player, played international rugby. But by the end of it, it was like commercial. How can I... How can I fund my family? How can I set my lifestyle up? How can I leave a legacy for my my kids? So it's like I probably played on longer than I, I should have, you know. Um, but when someone's dangling a three-year contract in front of you in financial security for another three years, you sign up to that drug. Um, but yeah, I'm left picking up the pieces, but um, I fully kind of accept where, where I'm at. One thing, Dylan, we ask is, if people are struggling for motivation at the moment or are aspiring to do something in terms of sport, what would you say your number one bit of advice would be to help people? Oh, from a guy that ebbed and flowed. And and I think when we talk about sport or, or training, like we talk about, you know, how you feel in your head and how you feel physically. That was me for 15 years. You know, I always, I never maintained. I found maintaining really hard. But what I did enjoy was training towards something. So I enjoyed putting on the weight because I became, I started enjoying my food. Socially, I was very good like in the off-season. But then I enjoyed the fight back. You know, I enjoyed the training, setting a goal of I want to get down to 105 kilo and, and working towards that, making a plan. And I think it all stems from, and I go through this daily now, is creating order. Because, you know, if you've got, Order and chaos, you know, two ends of the spectrum. Chaos is trying to take you down and, and pull you in the whole time. It's like, you know, pub gardens back open. So it's like come for a few pints and then you go to bed late and then your diet the next day is shit. And then you sleep more, then you eat more shit and then you don't train. So chaos finds chaos. Whereas if you can create like one bit of order in your life. So every morning I wake up and I eat the same thing. You know, I have oats with my daughter over breakfast. We, we make porridge together or we do overnight oats. So you always start the day with like a good meal. 
And then I do the school run. And then straight after that, I come home and part of my order, if I'm not working, is I go in the gym. So I think creating order. And then when you eat well, you want to train well. And then when you train well, you want to recover well. And guess what? When you train, you can probably reward yourself with something. So you're constantly thinking about order. And I think I experienced this uh, from, from captaincy, working with Eddie. Whatever you put in the front of your mind, you'll see. So if I tell you to look for something green, you know, you'll, you'll look for grass, you look for trees, you look for a green kettle in your kitchen there. But if you walk into a room as a captain, you think about high performance, you're constantly looking for good standards, you know, good culture. So I think if you're constantly thinking about creating order, so wake up, eat well, drink a litre of water, take your supplements, take your, your multivit, your vit D3, whatever it is, it kind of leads to more order. And then chaos is going to come slap you in the face at some point. But it's if you've got a good order to fall back on, you know, it, it can save you. But, you know, I fight it most days. Most weeks I kind of fall off and then I get back on. But I understand the process of how to get back there, um, which is I find nice and easy. So I don't know if anyone wants to listen, try and find order, avoid chaos. Well, Captain Chaos himself. James, so now that Dylan's gone... Is he an athlete or a sportsman? <laughs> I felt like I wanted to argue with him all day about that because I think he's an athlete. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point, actually, Charlie. I mean, it's funny how he, he discussed that. And I guess in his eyes, he sees athletes as endurance athletes and super lean people. Although it does remind me of a story, actually. A, a few years ago, I went to Saracens Rugby Club. Saracens has got a reputation for being a real high performance culture environment. And within 10 minutes of being in the gym in that environment, I can tell you those guys for sure are athletes. Mm, definitely. I absolutely loved it. The work ethic, the camaraderie, the togetherness. And I think that came across with Dylan's episode there because you could feel the warmth in his character and just seemed like a real great guy to be around, a real hardworking guy. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like I could have talked to him so much longer. In fact, we did actually, didn't we, when we pressed stop and record. Um, (laughs) There were so many interesting points about what he said, but I do feel, especially on this topic, that recovery doesn't always match or marry with the pressure of a sports person. And I think Dylan really got that across, especially in the role of captain. Yeah, well, on the recovery side, I think Dylan was the perfect guest because he, he really did illustrate the challenges of being an elite athlete. All too often we see the game on the Saturday or the Olympic final or the Tour de France and we don't really appreciate the sacrifice and hard work that goes in behind the scenes. And for Dylan to essentially talk about his career of being sore all of the time, how it's affecting his life after retirement from the sport. I think that really illustrates, Charlie, how hard it is to be an elite athlete and and truly at the top of your game. And just a real quick one, James. Um, You know what I'm going to say on this because I thought it was great when he was talking about eating a beef roast and then pudding and more pudding and the nutrition side versus the importance of psychology and what that symbolism meant to the team. Definitely. And, and I, I'm quite lucky that I share an office with Graham Close that Dylan mentioned a lot in his podcast. And, and Graham and I talk about this all of the time of the psychological side of eating and the role of food to play in, in sport. It's not just fuel. It's, a, it's almost like a bond between players. It's a good eating opportunity and it's a good way to build camaraderie amongst each other. On the recovery side of things as well, Charlie, I think Dylan is a, an athlete again to highlight that if you want to stay at the top of your career for a long time, 
recovery is something that you really do have to take serious. And and he was almost talking about recovery every single day to allow him to play consistently. And, and it's the same across all sports. Recovery is, is absolutely critical to have a long career. All right, let's bring in Professor Glenn Howitson. He's a professor of human and applied physiology at Northumbria University. And he continues to work closely with the English Institute of Sport and Olympic Sport to facilitate exercise recovery. He spent his whole career studying strategies to help athletes recover faster. So there really is no one better to talk to. Glyn, recovery is where we want to start. It's probably one of the most talked about areas of sports nutrition. Yet I feel that across elite athletes and fitness enthusiasts, it's actually the place that people make the most mistakes and probably put right at the bottom of their priority list. So can we start maybe at the beginning? What do we actually mean by recovery? And do you agree with me? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. And you're absolutely right. I think lots of people don't necessarily get recovery right uh, for a whole number of reasons. But probably best to start at the beginning. And what do we mean by recovery, I suppose? Yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing exercise, and particularly when it's quite strenuous, so anything, you know, perhaps gym-based of high intensity, long duration, anything that's causing you sort of physiological disturbance, is often going to result in declines in function. So that could be the way in which you're thinking, it could be the way in which your muscles are functioning. And essentially, you are having a decline in that sort of performance, if you like, and the way in which you feel not only physically, but potentially mentally as well. And collectively, we might term that as fatigue. So what we're trying to do when we're applying recovery strategies is to try and almost accelerate the way in which we bounce back from that so if we can imagine ourselves on a baseline and then when we do exercise we almost depress our physiological system so in other words we get that sort of decline in function and what we do when we recover and we will recover in the fullness of time if we give ourselves enough time back to that baseline what we want to do with a recovery strategy is to try and accelerate that and there are lots of reasons why you might want to do that but very often i find that people tend to uh, not do simple things really really well um, and actually that's probably the starting block and I remember hearing your previous podcast with uh, Andy Jones and and Paula Radcliffe and they were talking about you know the fundamentals of of some of the recovery strategies that they use and they use very very sensible hydration sensible nutrition and good sleep regimes and that's absolutely the foundation for recovery so you can do all sorts of other recovery strategies but if you don't have those fundamental things in place then you're probably not going to do particularly well so are they the simple things done really well yeah i think so so when you've finished a workout or you've been performing then you need to make sure that you're rehydrating well that you've got the right macronutrients, like the right carbohydrate, the right protein, right fat content in your diet, um, you know, good sources of fruits and vegetables. Um, and you can get a lot of this stuff just from your diet. There's no need necessarily to have, um, you know, additional bits and pieces. Um, and then obviously resting well. So making sure that you're, you know, you're sleeping, sleeping well. You're not doing silly little things like having lots of screen time, very close to bedtime. Um, things that are going to keep you awake at night. So you want to be able to regenerate, you know, during that those periods of sleep. Oh, I'm so bad for that. One thing I want to talk to you about, Glenn, and I wonder if you could answer the question why recovery is so key, because I think it's totally neglected. As somebody who is a junior athlete, we were almost taught the opposite. It was encouraged to push, push faster, harder, and actually 
rest was seen as a negative. So I'd love if you could talk to us why this is so important and try and almost ingrain it. Uh, because I think any of us listening, you know, it's like the day when it's the recovery day. You're so tempted to train. You should train harder, train extra. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to paraphrase a guy called Dave Costell, and and James will know this this chap. He's uh, one of the godfathers, if you like, of of sport and exercise science from the states. And he he quoted it really well. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but he said that periods of adaptation can only happen in periods of rest and recovery. Um, and, and that's really, really true. So yes, yes, you need that stimulus of the exercise in order to, to charge up the cells and to provide all of those signals, if you like, to lay down protein, if you're looking to, to, to grow muscle, for example, or you're improving you know, mitochondria within the cell to, to improve your aerobic capacity. But that can only happen in those periods of regeneration. So you need to have those periods of downtime. But importantly, you also need the right substrate in order to ensure that you've got the energy and the resources in the form of proteins and carbohydrates in order to be able to fuel that. James, with the athletes you've worked with, has that been a problem? Yeah, massively. I think um, if we go back to episode one and, and remember the conversation we had with Geraint Thomas, I mean, Geraint is the classic example of someone who wants to push himself day after day after day. And right back in episode one, Charlie, again, to contextualize it for everyone, is if you don't recover consistently well, then you run the risk of injury. You run the risk of underfueling. You run the risk of all of those symptoms of relative energy deficiency in sport that we discussed. And then eventually people break down. And this happens even at the highest level of sport. You have real top-class athletes breaking down and getting injured simply because they're not fueling consistently after the session, not before the session, after the session, because a lot of people think, I've finished my training, I've done the hard stuff, now I can relax and let the guard down. Actually, that's when the guard needs to come up even more and you really need to get dialed afterwards, not just beforehand. Glenn, what what are the actual timelines? Is there a way that you can do this in terms of recovery? Uh, it, it, yeah, that's 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 a, a tricky question in, in many ways, but it's a really important one. But I would say in broad terms, you want to try and hit it as early as you possibly can. So as soon as your exercise is finished, you need to be ensuring that you're getting um, the right recovery strategies in place. So for example, if you've done a heavy gym session and you know, you're know you going to be somewhat glycogen depleted, you need to get that on board. But also importantly, you need you know enough protein on board. Now, lots of people will take protein shakes and that may not necessarily be a pragmatic solution. You know, Often a, a good protein rich meal will probably do the job just as well. Things like milk as well can do, can do the job, but you need to hit it fairly early, Charlie. So you, you've got this window of opportunity to be able to regenerate, I would say in the short, the medium and the longer term. And certainly in the short term, it's about ensuring that the fuel and the substrate is on board in order for your, uh, your body to be able to regenerate. Yeah. The timing thing, again, I would say as a lot of people, that's where they make the biggest mistakes. I think they all think they know what they should be having, but they leave it too late. And so even at the elite level of of athletes who are training twice per day, for instance, quite often the afternoon session is nowhere near as high quality as the first session. And in many situations, it's not because they're fatigued. It's because they actually haven't eaten enough food at the right time after the morning session. So I hope our listeners really take away this point straight away, Charlie, about the timing If you want to recover optimally, 
then have a plan for those first 30 or 60 minutes after you've trained or after you've competed. Have the food in your kit bag ready to go so that you're not left to make choice on decisions because it's already there. And then you're reducing the room for error. I was just going to pick up on something James had mentioned earlier about injury. And it just, just reminded, just triggered something in my head that there was a there was a paper about in 2010, I guess, I think something like that by DuPont. And they did a little uh, epidemiology study where they looked at football teams that were playing in the Champions League. And they looked at the, the injury prevalence of those those guys. And the teams that were playing once a week, the injury prevalence was something like four injuries every thousand playing hours or thereabouts but once those guys were playing twice a week which of course you will do inherently playing in the champions league there was a six-fold increase in the rate of injuries so so some of that provides almost that basis of a need to be able to recover really really well um, but it also highlights that if you have, haven't recovered properly and you know we can't second guess why these people might have been injured but doing the simple things well may well reduce the prevalence of injury, particularly over an extended period of time. So in the Champions League, for example, if you end up finding yourself in the latter stages of the competition, the playing schedules become extremely excessive and you need to be able to manage that in, in a way that's going to reduce essentially your assets because these guys are million pound players. And of course, you don't want millions of pounds of assets sitting on the bench, uh, not being able to contribute. So th- th- there's um, there's almost financial rewards for those guys in looking after after themselves, as well as the, the sports science staff looking after them. James, Glenn was just talking about football. What about something like the Tour de France? Yeah, the, well, the Tour de France is probably the biggest recovery challenge, I think, in in elite sport, actually, because look, I know we spoke to Dylan and Dylan gets absolutely battered week after week playing rugby, but he still has seven days to recover. The Tour de France is different because you've got 18 hours to recover in between stage. The recovery element can be the difference between winning and losing because every hour is critical. And in fact, I remember when I first started working at Team Sky, one of the things that we changed most right from the beginning was the recovery protocol. I often found that riders weren't consuming enough in those first two or three hours after exercise. And that's the optimal time to recover, at least in terms of carbohydrate stores. And if you don't do that two or three days in a row, eventually your performance just crashes. So it's just another simple area that you can get right, the basics consistently well, which will help you win. Glenn, I know it's a it's a basic question I'm going to ask you, but is it focused around sports nutrition, around food? Because I feel like both of you spoke a lot about nutrients and food, but less so about rest. Well, I, th- I think that it, it, it goes a little bit back to what we started with insofar as it's just getting those fundamentals right. So making sure you rehydrate well, making sure you've got the right food on board very, very soon after the exercise has, has finished. But the, but the rest component, I don't think, can be underestimated because you also need cognitive downtime. Um, and I think actually a lot of athletes don't necessarily do that well. Even on their rest day, they might end up going to the park with with their children or going shopping or and that's not downtime um, and a lot of a lot of athletes struggle to be able to manage that and have a, a complete day off where they're sort of they're putting their feet up or or doing something very light and it's really important 
from a psychological perspective as well as a physiological perspective because that mental regeneration is just as important as the physical. Yeah, the, the rest element, Charlie, is, is absolutely critical. And one athlete springs to mind in particular, which was Chris Hoy. A few years ago at a conference in Newcastle, actually, I was sitting in your chair, so I was interviewing Chris Hoy on stage. And Chris is also a good friend of ours at Science and Sport, but he he talks a lot about recovery to the extent that when he came home, he, he wouldn't even go to the fridge. It was his wife that would go to the fridge. He would minimise all the time spent on his legs and he would be really taking that recovery um, really seriously because he's done a hard track session that day. He's squatting 250 kilograms that day. So he wants to stay off his feet as, as often as he can. And I mean, that's a great story because his wife was fully supportive behind him. Um, and so that for me, that was an athlete that really did understand recovery. And for sure, that allowed him to perform at the top for such a long career. I know we mentioned that we spoke to Dylan. And I know, Glenn, that you've worked in rugby. You Did you also play? Yeah, I played at National League sort of level. Um Played for the army, and uh, but this was a long time ago, Charlie. I hasten to add. So, I gave up rugby probably twenty years ago and ten kilos ago. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I was a reasonable club player, I would say, and I was the same sort of position as Dylan. So, I was front row. I played played hooker. That's probably my best position. Uh, and it's it's brutal, I have to say. It's um it's a it's a very brutal sport. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting talking to Dylan. And one of the things I I asked him was, "Do you ever feel like you recovered?" But I wanted to ask you about muscle soreness, basically, after a hard session, um, which we know as DOMS. So I think DOMS is talked about a lot, and we say, oh, "I've got DOMS," but do people know? What it is? I'm not sure. So can you explain what DOMS actually is? Yeah, DOMS is a DOMS is actually a symptom of something else. So DOMS is delayed onset muscle soreness, as, um, and it's actually a symptom of something else, which is exercise-induced muscle damage. And generally speaking, you get that from doing um, eccentric muscle contractions, which is basically things like braking activity, heavy acceleration, changes of direction, downhill running, jumping off boxes, those sorts of things where you you're absorbing lots of energy and what happens is that your muscles lengthen whilst they're under lots and lots of tension and that causes lots and lots of stress to the muscle and essentially they lengthen and uh, for want of a better phrase um, they almost have little micro tears within the muscle so there are different components within skeletal muscle components that move uh, and that's, those are the things that make your muscles contract and shorten. And there are things that don't move. And it's the things that don't move that give your muscles stability that tend to tend to break, if you like. Um, and so what happens when you do that, it causes a cascade of all sorts of uh, inflammatory events and increase in reactive oxygen species, so oxidative stress, essentially. And muscle soreness is almost a byproduct of that whole bigger process. So when we talk about DOMS, actually, it's just one thing that's happening as a result of the damaging exercise that we're doing. So is it is it seen as a bad thing? Because again, I think we're often taught that, oh yeah, it's good <laughs> because you can feel it afterwards. Uh, I mean, I personally am a bit sadistic, so I quite like the sensation. But, um, <laughs> but, but what tends to happen is... Um, 
particularly for doing, say, a new type of exercise. So, for example, it's the beginning of the season and you're just going into the gym for the first session, you're almost certainly going to get some form of muscle soreness. And it doesn't happen immediately afterwards. It doesn't happen even for the first hour or two, but usually six to eight hours after the exercise, you go, oh, actually, my muscles are feeling a little bit tight now. They're feeling a little bit sore. And then it's not until the following morning that you tend to really feel it. So it tends to sort of peak about, 24 to 48 hours after the exercise but alongside that you get some quite large reductions in muscle function so things like your ability to uh, express force um, and that could be through maximum force or it could be through more power activity which is essentially moving force very very fast Um, rate of force development so in other words how quickly you can exert that force that's kind of intrinsically related to power Um, so things like your sprinting activity uh, or your performance would probably decline. Um, the maximum force you're able to generate would probably decline. So there are a whole other facet of things that um, that come along with muscle soreness, which are, you know, from a performance perspective, you don't really want. You're not even able to move your arms particularly well or your legs uh, if they're if they're suffering from muscle soreness for a whole number of reasons. So it's 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 pretty unpleasant. But the upshot of this is that it's it's generally quite short-lived so usually within five days or so it will probably have abated almost completely Uh, and what's interesting if you did exactly the same bout of exercise between seven and 14 days later you will get a massive reduction in the amount of soreness and a massive amount of the reduction in the performance declines that you had before so the muscle adapts really, really quickly. And there's lots of ways in which we think that might be happening. There's no sort of defined single thing that's happening, but it's probably a combination of neural uh, changes, um, certainly changes at the skeletal muscle where the muscle was adapting, changes in the inflammatory response. There's a whole range of things that are, are coming into from that single bout of exercise to causing us to adapt really, really quickly. Um, but unfortunately for rugby players, they do a lot of that changing direction. They're going to get, you know, traditional muscle soreness, but they've got a different challenge insofar as, yes, they're going to get muscle soreness from doing that heavy eccentric work, but they also get collision issues. So in other words, um, a lot of blunt trauma from just hitting, and there's not really a way in which you can, you can condition yourself for that. Um, so they've got this added challenge of not only feeling muscle soreness in the way that you and I might experience it from the gym, but they've also got this added issue of um, being able to deal with the collisions that they're involved with. It's crazy how quick that repeat bout effect can happen. Like if you did, if you basically did something one week, it would you'd or you'd already have the benefit from that the week after. So I did this in my PhD. This is like twenty years ago, and I still can't get my head around this phenomenon. It's just for me, it just highlights how amazing that the body the body is and how plastic it is. So it's able to respond really quickly to you know just a single stimulus, um, and we use it actually quite quite a lot in in trying to understand adaptation and acute adaptation responses to whole different types of stimuli. But but it's a really nice way. Uh, to illustrate to, to all sorts of people about how how quickly our bodies can respond to things. And what's interesting about the repeat bout effect, it's not only in place really, really quickly, but it can stay with us for extended periods of time. And some of the literature suggests, you know, maybe up to six months that we can get some protection. Personally, I think that's nonsense. I think probably you're you're not looking at that sort of duration. I think if you leave it more than a month, people tend to get quite sore again. But certainly within that first week or two, you get lots and lots of protection. Is that why it's important to 
be consistent with training them. Well, yeah, unless you're you're sadistic as I am, in which case you, you like the sensation of muscle soreness. But that goes along with all training, doesn't it? I think, you know, being consistent and being able to stay on top of things. And I think once you're not experiencing that soreness, it gives you the ability and the capacity to maybe increase your volume. So if you're not feeling sore at day three or four, you can maybe hit that that same session again. Whereas, you know, if you're feeling sore, you're not going to be able to do that. Certainly not at the intensity that you would want to before. Yeah, I think there's a couple of good points in there, though, Charlie, as well, that some of the listeners might be able to take away because, look, we all know people that do the same workout for the same time on the same days every week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, three times a week, the same session, the same speeds, the same power output. They don't experience any soreness because the muscle has adapted to that stress, but they also don't get any fitter. And so and so the soreness is often... a a sure tell sign that you've stressed the muscle to do something that it's not used to doing. And then as a result, it's going to adapt, it's going to grow, it's going to get fitter. And it's often a good sign that you're progressing in your training. So I, I'm with Glenn. Like I think if, if you don't get soreness off some of your sessions, it probably means that you're not um, adapting your stimulus enough and you need to do something different in your training. Yeah, I was going to say that. When I was listening to you, Glenn, I was like, oh, but does that mean that there's not a progression? Because I suppose I would always see DOMS as, you know, when you said this tiny tears of the muscle as a way that it's increasing and improving your performance and your strength. Yeah, I think that probably the biggest single determinant of getting muscle soreness is the intensity. So if if the intensity is is uh, of a particular level, you're likely to get muscle soreness. And, and you have to combine that with volume to a certain extent. A simple example might be if you're doing bench press and you're doing, I don't know, five sets of five at 100 kilos and you're you're getting sore after after a session like that. Um, and it might be that the next session, if you did exactly the same, you're not likely to get sore, but actually you'll probably be able to stress the muscle a little bit more. So you might go up to, say, 105 kilos um, and that will provide you with that extra stimulus and that will probably give you that you probably won't be as sore as you were on day one, that's for sure. Um, but it, you'll certainly experience um, some sort. So it's all about that progressive overload, which is, you know, which is in trading folklore, of course. So you're always trying to just edge it forward. The, the challenge, of course, is you always hit a plateau, don't you? And and you get to the point where it's like, well, okay, I've been doing this now. I can't lift. I can't physically can't lift anymore and I'm not getting sore. So that's the opportunity then to try and mix up the training program. So instead of doing maybe an Olympic bar, you might want to do, do something like, um, you know, dumbbell flies, for example, you know, and that suddenly then the challenge becomes very different. You're sort of taxing the same sort of muscle group, but in a very, very different way. And that might then provide you with that extra little stimulus, that little click that you need to be able to get over the hump, so to speak. So we've spoken about, I want to move on and talk a bit about nutritional elements because we've spoken a little bit about it. But what can we do to promote recovery from that damage and reduce the muscle soreness? And I know, Glenn, you've done some work around cherry juice. Can you explain a bit more to us? Yes. Yeah, so I think traditionally when people have got muscle soreness, they've often um, gone for the, the medicine cabinet. They've gone for the ibuprofen or the, the non-steroid anti-inflammatory of some description to try and knock it on the head. And, and actually the evidence suggests that those sorts of things don't work very well at all for muscle soreness. But there's certainly a belief there because we know that there's an inflammatory process going on within the muscle that if you can try and dampen that in some way, shape or form, then you've got a good opportunity then to maybe reduce some of the symptoms that you might get from um, from doing that sort of he heavy eccentric work 
Um, and what's interesting now, people are, are less inclined to reach for the medicine cabinet. So they don't want necessarily pharmacological interventions because who wants to pop pills unless you really have to? Uh, and I think as research has progressed in the last probably 10 or 15 years, we've been much more aware of, of some of the medicinal properties that are, that are in plants and certainly in lots of everyday fruits and vegetables that we consume on a regular basis. And the cherry juice story comes from exactly that. So we, we know that from the literature that, that cherries, and I, I, don't want to, I don't want this to be about cherries at all, but I think it needs to be about foods that are rich in a whole number of different plant compounds that have anti-inflammatory and antioxidative properties, which is fantastic because suddenly then you've got this alternative. So rather than reaching for something that might not work from the medicine cabinet, you've got this opportunity to, to have a bowl of cherries, for example, or blackcurrants or hascat berries or whatever, whatever it might be, you know, so, so, there are lots and lots of fruits and vegetables out there that are rich in compounds called polyphenols and anthocyanins. And these are really nice compounds that have shown to have similar sort of anti-inflammatory effects to non over-the-counter non-steroid anti-inflammatories. So we've used interventions like that to try and manage some of the symptoms, some of the negative symptoms around muscle damage. So would you advise things like, you did mention a few there, but maybe we could have a bit of a list for people. So cherries, black currants. Yeah, so uh, choke berries, acai berries. So all of these, they're not they're not very well known um, uh, very often, and, that, and it's because they're often grown in faraway lands. So the cherries that we use, they're from North America, and they're a particular they're a particular variety. So you can't go to Tesco's and high street supermarket and buy these. These are these are tart Montmorency cherries. So they're a particular cultivar, um, and it's those specific cultivars that have these rich polyphenols and, and anthocyanin properties that allow us to, be, to potentially manage some of those negative signs and symptoms. Um, broadly speaking, if you've got a diet that's got lots and lots of red and blue and very dark blue fruits and vegetables in it, they're probably high in anthocyanins and polyphenols. So if you've got lots, you know, so a handful of, of blueberries or cherries or has, has got a good quantity of these polyphenols in them. And you can get those, of course, from from all sorts of uh, uh, grocers, uh, green grocers. So it's they're very accessible. And, and broadly speaking, blues and reds are, are a good thing in your diet. It, so it sounds a little bit nondescript, but but actually no, it, it's it, good it is. To have it like that. Yeah, and it's the, the colours that you see, those blues and reds, are actually from the anthocyanins that are within those within those fruits and vegetables. So so if it's if it's very dark blue or appears almost black, a bit like black currants, then they've got high polyphenol counts in them, and usually anthocyanins. So they've got antioxidant properties and and anti-inflammatory properties in them. Yeah, and I, th I think that's why things like smoothies and that are, are actually a good recovery option for, for many of us. Simply blending up berries, yogurts, bananas, milk, and so on is, is a really feasible, good-tasting recovery option that will do the job. Glenn, I also now have to ask you about ice baths. So we've kind of covered a good nutritional basis, um, cognitive rest as well, which I think is really important, and actual rest. So what about ice baths then? Because Dylan mentioned them. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have. I certainly have as well, and I've noticed a difference. Do they actually work for recovery or do they hinder recovery? Wow, That's a, that, that is a good question. So the, the, the literature is actually a little bit grey, I would say. But by and large, um, and we've done some some systematic reviews on, on this, and, and we've shown that um, it has a modest positive effect. 
very broadly on recovery and certainly from, from, from muscle soreness and muscle damage. And depending on the type of activity that you do will depend on the recovery strategy that you might want to, what might want to employ. So there's a lot of debate in the literature, I think is probably the best way to, way to put it. And there's been a lot of contention around whether to use ice baths or not, because, you know, does that it help means, recovery? That means he's, he's sitting on the fence there, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Because anecdotally, they work for me. I was actually telling James that when I did um, my 250-mile football challenge for charity, I had an ice bath in, kindly, the different football clubs I ran to each night, apart from one night. And I don't know whether this was just placebo, but it made a massive difference how I felt the next morning. But I was doing an endurance run, so maybe that's the difference, say, if you were doing something like strength training. Well, there's there's also there's i mean there's a story behind that as well charlie you're doing consecutive days of exercise so there's a time and a place probably to apply these these strategies so what the fear of some some practitioners and some athletes is that it might have a negative effect so the suggestion in the literature is that it might blunt adaptive responses to exercise training however the caveat to that is if you're not interested in adapting and you're interested in just recovering for the next session, then that you don't have those issues to worry about. And all you're worried about is just getting back to that basal state, that's that baseline, which is exactly where you want it to be. So if you're doing, you know, run after run after run, you're not interested in getting better necessarily. You just want to be back to where you were. Um, and, and in those sorts of scenarios, you know, I would be throwing the kitchen sink at it. It wouldn't be just cold water immersion. It would be good nutrition. It would be, you know, maybe there's a, uh, a bolus of cherry juice to have in there. There could be, you know, some compression garments. So just basically you want to be in a, in, in a good state of mind and feel physically ready to be able to compete the next day, which is exactly the scenario that James was in with, um, with Team Sky where I mean, they've got an absolutely brutal schedule. So getting them back to that basal state is is absolutely crucial. It's a really good point, the difference between the performance adaptation and improving in that sense and actually just the blunt recovery. Yeah, and I think that's so hard for people to decide what they want to do, Charlie, because many of the listeners probably don't know, right, is this the rec- a recovery type approach or an adaptation type approach? It's, it's different, obviously, at the elite athlete level because that's all mapped out by the coaches. And as Glenn said, a, a scenario like the Tour de France is the kitchen sink. You throw everything you've got on it. For the everyday exercise, if I could give you one bit of advice, I would probably say not to use ice baths after strength training because there is some evidence that ice baths and cold water immersion might actually stop muscle growth, which is the very thing that you're trying to achieve in the first place. I think there probably is a time and a place to do them after some endurance training sessions. But my own interpretation of the science is is not after strength training sessions. But Glenn is is much better placed than me to comment on that. No, James, you're absolutely right, and you know there's there's been a couple of reviews in the last um, in the last few months that have that have highlighted that, and uh, there are lots of limitations in the in the literature. It has to be said, so they're using quite brutal regimes in terms of the cooling strategies, and and I don't think that they necessarily reflect what happens in the real world. Just as an example, um, one study has used eight degrees um, for twenty minutes immersion, and that's like sitting in the North Sea in winter time. Uh, for, for 20 minutes and I, I, I defy anyone to really sit in there with any comfort at all so you're almost getting an exaggerated physiological response but nonetheless there was 
it is a cause for concern. So uh, as a practitioner, I would be really concerned about prescribing cold water immersion after resistance exercise if the purpose of that session was to try and grow and adapt. Um, if I was not worried about that and it was after a rugby match for example I, I would be doing um i would be doing the james morton let's throw the kitchen sink at it and just get everybody back to where they need to be so glenn finally if you could give one bit of advice in terms of recovery to help our listeners no matter what level they're at what would it be do the basics well hydrate eat well rest well i would say timing yeah i would say don't don't wait three or four hours before you decide to think about recovery. If you've been man of the match and scored the last minute winner, it doesn't matter. You still need to get your recovery straight in. If you smash the PB in your training or race, it doesn't matter. You need to still have your recovery straight away. So timing for me would be absolutely critical. And you can do that better if you have a plan to start with and all of the food and the recovery products in your kit bag ready to go exactly when you finish. James, I thought Glenn was really interesting when he spoke a lot about whether muscle soreness and DOMS is actually a good and a bad thing. And it really made me think about sometimes my repetition of training because we're so habitual and whether it's good to shake things up and actually have that muscle soreness. Yeah, you know, Charlie, I love having the experts on the show just as much as the athletes because as you've mentioned before, Glenn spent his whole career studying this area. Yeah. And I think the way that he illustrated this was that DOMS are a symptom of damage. And so therefore, if you're not getting DOMS, it's effectively a sign that your muscle hasn't been stressed or damaged as a result of the exercise stimulus. And so perhaps we do need to mix it up from time to time. And perhaps having those DOMS is a good sign that your training is actually inducing a training response in your muscle. Yeah, I think it's a really good way to look at it. And I love how it was like, just do the basics well. And I think a lot of the time it is about that, but it's not it's not that easy to just do the basics well. And I really liked how when we talk about recovery, he almost did this like holistic approach where we included mental and cognitive recovery as well. Yeah, well, look, I spend a lot of my time, Charlie, going around different sports. I mean, professional sports and elite sports and, and looking at the different strategies. And, and quite often we see that, Everyone's looking for the icing on the cake. But of course, you have to bake the cake first. You need a nice big fat cake when it comes to recovery. And I think I think that's a perfect analogy because it is relatively simple in theory. It is as simple as eating as well in those first few hours, resting well, sleeping well. But unfortunately, many of us in elite sport and many, many people in everyday life, we're so busy with our lives. We're so busy rushing from here, there and everywhere that we forget the basics. And when it comes to recovery, it's the basics that really will make the biggest difference. So what is the most important thing in terms of recovery then? Well, it all depends on how hard your session has been. But as as I mentioned in that episode there with Glenn, my advice would be if you've had a hard session, then consume food as close to the finish of the exercise training or competition as you can. But to plan ahead, have so eat to a plan rather than eating to emotional choice and decisions if you eat to a plan you'll give yourself the best chance of recovery yeah okay and also like eat blues and reds right <laughs> yeah well again that's another simple way that you can recover as, as glenn mentioned blues and reds so when you're going to the supermarket and you're looking at your fruit and vegetables this is another analogy that we use with athletes is often eat to a rainbow 
So try and pick as much colorful fruit and vegetables as you can, because generally the more colorful, the more rich they are in micronutrients. Thank you so much, James. And thanks for listening to this episode. So much I think we can take from that. While you're waiting for the next one, make sure to check out Science in Sport across socials at Science in Sport for exclusive content with some of our guests. And we'd love it if you leave a review because we'd like to hear from you. Thanks so much and see you next time. Mm-hmm.